Welcome to another episode of the Hoop Talk Podcast by fans for fans. I'm Ryan. There's my guy, Jalen. What's up, everybody? This podcast is where we discuss all things basketball, so expect a lot of hot takes, debates, and a true display of basketball knowledge. Let's get right into it. Our topic today is our top five storylines in the NBA part five. And we are back at it again with a special guest here on the podcast to help us break down our top our, our top five storylines. So please welcome back to the podcast, Rashad Christian. Yo, what's going on, everybody? Always, as always, a pleasure to be back on the, the little hoop top podcast, ready to Oh, we have some really good topics, actually, I will say. We were talking a lot pre-pod, and we, we started getting into the topics. This is when we knew we had to start recording. <laughs> <laughs> These are some good stuff, so we're ready. Yeah, let's get into it. Jalen, let's get into this. This this is a big episode. A lot has happened in the past week. Yeah, man. So, actually, I want to preface this. Rashad's doing himself a little bit of a disservice. These, uh, these uh, topics not only are uh, really solid in terms of um, the actual storylines we're going to be following, but this is also um, another one of the episodes we've tried to do over time of allowing the guests to pick the stop, the pick each of the topics for us. So we're going to rely on Rashad to kind of uh, guide us through this with the top five storylines that uh, he came up with. He did share them with us ahead of podcast uh, just so we can prepare for them uh, accordingly. But I'm actually going to let Rashad be the one to share our first storyline to get us going, and then we'll kind of continue the conversation uh, from there. So Rashad. The yes, first yes, yes. one to start off with in terms of the top five storylines we should be keeping up with or that people have been keeping up with in the NBA. Yes, thank you for the introduction. So one of the bigger storylines of the NBA, I think we can all agree, was John Morant and the Grizzlies' meteoric rise to a third seed in the Western Conference. Um, I just wanted to, you know, just kind of pose the question you know, we all know Jaws playing phenomenal at an MVP level. He's been on the MVP ladder in the top 10 for the past X amount of weeks. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at the the most recent MVP ladder. He's number seven. Mm-hmm. Are we thinking this is too low because he's behind players like Steph and Devin Booker and DeMar DeRozan? Mm-hmm. So are we thinking that John Morant has earned himself a top five or even a top four spot in the MVP race? So, Ryan, I want you to go first, and then I want Rashad to actually give his reasonings as to why he does or does not believe this, and then I'll, I'll go last. Okay, so I think for me, he should be higher. I think his meteoric rise is not getting talked about as much because there are other players in this conversation that are making MVP cases for themselves. You look at Jokic, who we're going to talk about a little bit later, Giannis, Joel Embiid, DeMar DeRozan, who we're also going to talk about later. You can make an argument for Steph Curry as well. But looking strictly at John Morant's numbers, he matches up pretty well with the rest of the the players who are in this MVP conversation. So Mm -hmm. he's averaging about 27 points per game, six rebounds, seven assists. He's shooting about uh, 49% from the field. And not to mention, this is all coming off of a 52-point game against the San Antonio Spurs recently. So that's definitely a case for him to insert his name into the MVP conversation. Not to mention the Grizzlies are one of the best teams in the West. And I talk about the gradual rise of the Grizzlies as a team. You look at John Morant's first year, this was a team that was at uh, the eighth seed uh, entering the bubble and they ended up losing in the in the last game of the bubble to the Portland Trailblazers. 
the next the next season they beat the Golden State Warriors to get into the playoffs as an eighth seed, and this year they're the third seed. So I think right now the Memphis Grizzlies are one of the more underrated teams. They definitely have a chance to be title contenders this season with the way that John Moran has been playing. But I think that he has so much going for him right now, and I think that he should be higher on that list. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, I th- I'm, It's very obvious that I think Josh should be in the top five MVP voting. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So just I think just from the eye test alone, you know, you watch a lot of these Grizzlies games. They've started putting a lot more of them on national television now. You're getting a lot of eyes on these guys especially Ja, and you mentioned that 50-point game against the Spurs. That's on 22 of 30 shooting. That's 73% for a point guard that goes into the paint and leads the league in paint scoring per game, right? So we're looking at a player who's transcending even his own position, leading a team that we all thought and saw them as a play-in slash 6-5 seed, right? They were one of the three teams with 40 wins before the All-Star break. Are they there without Jaw? Absolutely not. They have a really good supporting cast. I'll give you that. They have the Desmond Baines of the world. They got the Dylan Brooks. They got the Jaron Jackson, who's taken a really big leap this year. But ultimately, it comes down to Jaw. And I think just, just watching his level of play and how tenacious he can get, because that's another thing that a lot of people don't talk about, is that Jaw just gets after it. Like He goes at everyone and everything with 100% effort. And he's been doing that, like you said, Ryan, for the past three seasons. And this rise was something we might not have saw to this degree, but it's something that we kind of saw coming in his career. And now all of it's on display. No, I think those are all like really solid points when you talk about like the build up to the idea of like wondering when he was going to break out. And now this season kind of being the one that is kind of like where it's all all coming together. The one thing I do want to do, because... I feel like there is a little bit of context that needs to be added just in case mm. people are wondering about the validity of where John Morant should be in this run. You know, you talk you talk about his most recent run. I'm just going to go back to the last 10 games he's played specifically. So this goes back to January 29th. So it's win over Washington by 20, lose to Philly by three, New York, Orlando, the Clippers, Detroit, Charlotte, New Orleans, which he didn't play in that game. They lose to Portland, Minnesota, Chicago, San Antonio. So the 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 only thing that I think may play against him as, as opposed to some of the other players that might be in conversation is that especially over this last these last 10 games where things have kind of really shot up for him in terms of being on the national spot. Like obviously Jaw is a walking ESPN top 10 highlight but and i'm talking about within the mv mvp sphere it's really been over the last two or three weeks with that being the case maybe a little bit longer but i'm gonna go back within the last 10 games so maybe a little bit longer but dating back to that they've only played let's see philly they lost to they beat the clippers by 26 that's huge charlotte's in the mix but that's a team that's on the outside looking in minnesota they lost to Chicago is a really big win, and San Antonio is on the outside looking in. They've really only faced two or three teams within this big meteoric rise of this back half of the season, coming especially coming out of the All-Star break, where 
like they have done damage against teams that you fear. If you even look a little bit earlier than that, they did get a win right before that Washington win to start that stretch I was talking about. They beat Utah, but prior to that, lost by 13 to Dallas, lost by 12 to Milwaukee, uh, lost by 27 to Dallas. Uh, they did beat Golden State, Minnesota. Like they have quality wins throughout the season. I personally, um, I'm biased towards DeMar DeRozan, obviously. So if he's somebody that's like on your fifth line, of course, I'm going to break the tie by saying that I think DeMar DeRozan is five. And Rashad, I think we actually had that conversation briefly on Instagram too when I posed the question. We did. Um, But I, the thing that I do want to point out most importantly when you talk about Ja this season is that the depth of his team is so much more significant some, than some of the other teams around him. But I do still agree with a point that Rashad made earlier that I don't think that this team would be able to top out nearly as strong as they have this season. For example, I think one of the better sophomore players this season has been Desmond Bain. I think that has a lot to do, not only with the fact that I think Desmond is a, uh, is a really elite shooter and a nice player on the defensive end, but I think John Morant's influence on the guys around him, it shows just within their own developmental scale, right? From, from last season to this season, you have a guy like Desmond Bain who has more ball handling responsibilities, and he's been able to really thrive within that. Triple J has played all season. Now, we got to first off chalk that up to like, Thankfully, he's been able to dodge the injury guys this year. Knock on wood, yep. that it stays that way. Um, but he's been really got good this season. It's been one of the best shot blockers in um in the league. And one of the best implications that John Morant has a really uh like a really good grip on the guys around him in terms of like understanding what the guys around him need, his rapport with Steven Adams is nuts. And I understand that there's kind of this Russell Westbrook type of dichotomy that people will try to point out, but they're, those same people that would try to point out that translation were the, probably the same people who thought trading Steven Adams for Jonas Valanciunas was not a solid move in terms of them taking a hit on the offensive end and maybe not getting as much back on the defensive end. I think those are the, those same people look wrong on both fronts. Um, I think John Morant, again, I think John Morant's definitely top seven. Um, I'm putting him at six again because I'm leaning DeMar. I want to ask you guys this, and Rashad, I'll start with you. The guy who I think is most under the gun in terms of whether or not they deserve to be in this top five from what we have solidified, I think Nikola Jokic is, is, is there. I think that Joel Embiid is in there, and I think Giannis is there. Steph Curry is the one that I feel like might be staring at mortality a little bit in terms of his tenure in the top five. Um, I, and I think the beginning of his season is holding a lot of that weight, but he has still been really good this latter half of the year. Um, how do you feel about Steph Curry this season in terms of him remaining in that top five? I know this goes a little bit off of our discussion about John Morant, but I think it puts into perspective. If we have to take somebody out of the top five, we have to kind of take a look at the guys who are in there yeah. and figure out who we're replacing John Morant with. And I think, in all of the lists that I've talked about with my friends, I think Steph has been the name that I have taken out of that top five because, like you're saying, his his start to the, se- to the season has just been incredible. And the man was – he was doing well. He broke a lot of records this season so far, and it's just all of the accolades are what are keeping him afloat, like you said, Jalen. So, I mean, you look at a game like last night against the Timberwolves, the man shot 10 of 24, 5 of 16 from 3, and they took home the L. Or 
I'm not sure if I'm remembering that correctly. Yeah, they did. They lost by 15 yeah. yesterday. Right. So, you know, it, it's stuff like that that makes me kind of take a step back from Steph and realize that while Ja does have those games where he also goes seven for 25, for instance, and helps or not helps in the case, but, you know, can't lead the team to a win over Portland. Right. It's kind of like that back and forth. But I think Steph has had, I think, a too few many dips in terms of just compared to every other MVP candidate and in terms of his own sort of skill set. So we expect a certain level from Steph, whether it's fair or not. And he gets rewarded or punished for playing above or below that. So if we're staying with that same you know, mindset in theory, Steph has been steadily just you know, up and down, decreasing all season long. And yeah. I think that's his strongest argument for being taken out and Ja inserting himself right there. Yeah, uh, Ryan, just to kind of put that into context too, like I, I pulled up the, the, the score. They just dropped, uh, the score.com just dropped their MVP standings and they have Steph Curry at sixth and they have Chris Paul at number five, DeMar DeRozan at four, Giannis at three, um, Embiid at two, and Jokic at one. Um, with Ja at seven. So again, going back to Steph Curry, it seems like there's already certain ploys for him being the odd man out. Now, I do think the Chris Paul stuff, that, that stuff's going to fall off as the season continues just as the fact that he's not going to play. And so other guys are going to have opportunities to build a strong enough sample size that might be able to combat Chris Paul's impact on the floor. But um, yeah, your thoughts on Steph Curry too in terms of his his season? Because again, out of the guys that I feel like are quote unquote solidified in the top five, that once you get past the top three guys, I feel like that's where things get tricky when you talk about maybe who really fits in. Yeah, and and looking at Steph Curry's numbers after he broke the record, there was a stretch of games where he was struggling to shoot the ball. And even like before and leading up to that record, he was struggling to shoot the ball. Uh, uh, and, and that was one of the things that has made him such a great player. He's the greatest shooter of all time. And the fact that he was struggling shooting for certain stretches of the season, that's where somebody like John Morant can hop in and move up in the MVP rankings. So I think that that was something that uh, has been kind of contributing to Steph not being um, one of the top names in the MVP conversation. Um, so Rashad, I want to take this MVP conversation to slide over back to you for our second topic. Um, and this is starting to become a staple when you come on the podcast, this topic that we're about to discuss next. Uh, so I want to let you introduce it and then we kind of get into not only your post question, but kind of discussing um, the implications moving forward of the season. Yeah, so I just want to preface this by saying I am an absolute humongous super fan of Nikola Jokic, and that is who we're going to be talking about with this topic, um, because this man has been having, and this was, I think, the last episode I was on, we kind of ended with this. Yeah, it was like, (laughs) is he having the greatest season of all time right now? It's like, since then, he has gotten better. And it's just all season long, it's just been record after record. He's got 70-plus triple-doubles already. He's been carrying a team without its second and third option to a sixth seed, and they're going to make the playoffs. He might win another MVP. It's just been a lot of good over there with Jokic. So I want to pose the question. I think we'll start with Jay first on this one. Mm. Where... 
what's what's even the question? Because there's so many routes okay. I can go with this. Like, are we really like how impressed are we with this season? Is this the greatest season of all time from a center? Is this, you know, are the Nuggets actually contenders? And I think I want to focus in on that because there are reports that MPJ and Jamal Murray could potentially be back by or before the playoffs. So the question I want to talk to you guys about is, is there serious talks about these guys led by an MVP who's playing at such a different level? Is there a route for them to even make the Western Conference finals, let alone the finals? I think there's a legitimate route um, for them, especially if those guys return. But I still think that the Nuggets are going to be a dangerous out regardless of those guys come back. But I'm just going to put um, a lot of the stuff into perspective first when you talk about the historic season. Um, first of all, regular counting stats, right? Let's start with that. 25.5 points per game, 1.4 steals per game, nearly a block per game, 8 assists, 13.8 rebounds, um, has an effective uh, field goal percentage of uh, 61.3, best of his career in that regard. Shooting 63% from two, best of his career for that. from three, which is like the third best of his career, but the highest amount of attempts at uh, 4.3 attempts per game. If you want to talk about it from a historical standpoint, right? So right now he leads the league in total rebounds with uh, 758 this season. He's second in the league with those 13.8 rebounds. I think it's huge when you talk about the fact that he's number one in defensive rebounds with 606. His season best is back in 2018, 2019. We had 637. So basically, he's about to smash his defensive rebounding um, high mark in terms of what he's done so far this in his career. And I saw a stat, or I think I might have heard on a podcast, with his, with his strong defensive rebounding, he reduces opponents' offensive rebounding by like a full 4%, which like, in the grand scheme of things, might not sound too crazy, but think about it like stocks. If you even see a percentage move, that could be the difference between a lot and a little bit in, within, within the framework of a game. Um, you talk about assists per game, he's sixth in the lead in ter- terms of total assists um, this year, and he's eighth in the league overall in terms of assists per game. Um, a lot of the defensive metrics favor him in a way that I don't think is typical um, for example, Steph Curry and Nikola Jokic are both top five defenders in terms of like defensive EPM and stuff like that, which is like just not typical. Nobody's calling Nikola Jokic or Stephen Curry like defensive stoppers. I think they just work very well within the framework of what the like what the personnel around them provides. The true shooting is bizarre. He's seventh in the league in true shooting this year at 65.1%. All of these are big boy topics. All of these are big boy words player efficiency rating too, number one in the league. Like these are all things that should direct you to believe that he has single-handedly been one of the most efficient players in basketball history while having arguably one of the largest offensive roles that any player has ever had on that side of the ball, being a guy who is one of the best facilitators, arguably I would say one of the best big uh, passing big men in NBA history while also being played through as almost like a guard in terms of his usage. Let's, let's talk about their actual ability to be championship contenders. I think the path is dependent on the matchups more so for the nuggets Mm. than it is their actual talent on the floor. Because I think, especially if they get Jamal and they get MPJ back healthy, 
I think roster for roster, they're going to be able to line up with a lot of other teams. But the trick is, um, let me pull, I'll pull it up right now and I'll ask you guys this um, in the framework of put this team versus this team, where do you stand? And we're going to go with it with the idea that Jamal Murray and MPJ are back on the team. So I, I'll frame it this way. Do you see them beating the Suns in a in a seven game series? No. Right? No. No. Do you see them beating the Warriors in a seven game series? Yes. Hmm, okay. Okay. I'm gonna like say it. no. Okay. Do you see them beating the Grizzlies in a seven game series? Yes. Okay. I think so, they'll beat them. Yeah. So realistically speaking, if the season ended today, you both have faith that they would be able to beat the Grizzlies in a seven-game series. If the season ended today, that would be the team they would face. That would that would ideally yeah. be the matchup that they would get. My concern is here's my my personal concern is that they catch anybody between the Grizzlies, the Jazz. And even the, the Mavericks, to a certain degree, if they catch any of those three in any fatuation, because they're only a game back behind the Mavericks, of, who's in fifth, and they're two and a half games back behind the Jazz in fourth, and then you have the Grizzlies, who are game back of second. So there's a lot of potential movement in that top six. I think if the Nuggets see any of the group that we have right now being the Grizzlies, Jazz, or Mavericks, I think that they have a legitimate shot, especially if they have their guys back healthy. If the Warriors drop to three and the Nuggets are still at six or any any iteration where the Nuggets end up facing the Warriors in the first round, I think even with their guys back healthy, I think I'm still taking the Warriors. And that's where I frame it in the in regards to this is one of the, the few teams across both playoff platforms, I think, talking about the East as well, where I think the matchup is going to be so much more indicative, uh, indicative of how far this team can go talking about their pathway. Um, I know I'm talking a lot. So Ryan, I want to pass it over to you in terms of like what you think the Nuggets championship equity is. I think is the best way we should try to phrase this in terms of like, if they are healthy, the ceiling of this team is in certain points. So real quick on Nikola Jokic. And I was reading this article from Forbes and uh, Joel Rush is the contributor to this article Dem the Denver Nuggets center, Nikola Jokic, is the NBA's most efficient triple-doubler. Now, he's about five triple-doubles away from tying Will Chamberlain for the most triple-doubles triple ever recorded by a center. He could get that done this year, by the way. But um, I want to read something interesting from the article that um, Rush pointed out. And he, com he compared... Um, you know, a lot of the players that have recorded a lot, uh, many triple double, or that have recorded uh, triple doubles throughout the years, uh, the Magic Johnsons, the Oscar Robertsons, the Russell Westbrooks. He said, uh, "Not all triple doubles are equal, and although Nikola Jokic appears unlikely to ever be the league's most prolific triple doubler outside of the center position, he is in fact the most efficient in scoring among NBA's." the NBA's historic triple-double leaders, uh, triple-double triple double leaders. Now, I've looked at some of the stats and his efficiency rating for his triple-doubles. Um, I'll just go based off the last five games. So February 26th against the Sacramento Kings, he shot 37.5% from the field. 
in the game against the Boston Celtics, 45% from the field. In the game against the Brooklyn Nets, 80% from the field. In the game against the Milwaukee Bucks, 77.8% from the field. In the game against the Pelicans, 58% from the field. And even going beyond that, his numbers are surprisingly efficient for um, the amount of triple-doubles that he's been putting up. I mean, 68.8% from the field in the loss to Memphis. You look at 64% from the field in the in the win against the Clippers, uh, 55.6% from the field in the win, in, in the loss, should I say, against the Utah Jazz, and then 58.3% from the field in the win against the Lakers. These are surprisingly efficient numbers coming from a center who has expanded his game more where he's not only just scoring in the paint, he's expanding to the mid-range. He's shooting threes. He's facilitating the ball. He's attacking the glass at a high rate. He's doing it all for a Denver Nuggets team that is about to get two of their other best players back in Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. Now you ask, where do I stand on the Nuggets right now? The Nuggets right now can make the Western Conference Finals. They have the ability to. They have the talent to. They definitely upgraded in certain positions. I think DeMarcus Cousins was an underrated acquisition because I think the the Nuggets needed more depth behind Nikola Jokic. Bryn Forbes, I think, was another good acquisition because he can come off the bench and get 10 points to hit a couple threes. So they have the talent there to make a run to the Western Conference Finals. It's just, can they do it? So, Rashad, I want to flip this question real quick to you. Um, And I feel like it's only right that we kind of do this because in terms of the Western Conference, they're the trickiest team when you talk about the power dynamics amongst the top eight. So I want to mm-hmm. ask you this question, um, leaning with the Nuggets as obviously the anchor for this conversation because they're in the top six. Anybody outside of the top six is on the play-in bubble, and that's one of those things where we will not have a real determination of where they play in a championship picture until that is settled. But under the current gun, the top, the top six teams in order in the Western Conference are the Phoenix Suns, the Golden State Warriors, the Memphis Grizzlies, the Utah Jazz, the Dallas Mavericks, and then the Nuggets. From a championship equity standpoint, because I want to stick, I want to stick on this topic since you posed that that top uh, posed the question this way. From a championship uh, equity standpoint, where within the top six, based on those teams, would you put the Nuggets at full strength? Realistically, I think we stick with what they have been, which is around that three seed. Right. That that run in the bubble, they went to when they actually got to the conference finals with that full roster. They were the three seed. Right. And they were having a terrific run then. And we saw every single piece of that puzzle work in a way that lent themselves to the Nuggets actually getting somewhere far in the playoffs. Right. So we have we have a baseline for what he can be. At personally a lower level, too, because at that point he had not had the MVP award. That was a year before. He had not taken the defensive jump that he did this year. This is a completely new Nikola Jokic from the bubble. The last time he's had everyone healthy for a full season. Right. And now where do I see them at full strength? Like I said, the three seed. And I think they have a really favorable matchup against everyone outside of the Suns. Right. What we saw last year with the Suns against the Nuggets was that they put him in the pick and roll. 
The Nuggets were playing drop coverage. Chris Paul, Devin Booker, and DeAndre Ayton were abusing him. Right? You're looking at the tape now this year. He personally has gotten better in the pick and roll situation. He is a lot more active. He's a lot more mobile, which was his biggest problem was that he was such he was so flat footed and slow last year. And now it's a complete 180 this year. So his own personal defensive development, plus the returning of his offensive assets that were shooting 40 percent, by the way, both of them from the three point line before they got injured last year. Right. So now you get those back, you add boogie. So Jokic can take a break now and not feel like the team is just going to squander everything he worked for. They got Bryn Forbes, like you said. They got Will Barton still. They've got a rookie in Bones Highland that has shown that he can put up some really, really impactful minutes. This is a whole new look Nuggets, and we have not seen them at full strength, and they are still 11 games above 500. So I think you take two 20-point scores away from them, yeah, this is where they should be worse. That's the thing a lot of people aren't noticing is that this team should be 9-10 seed. But they're the sixth. Yeah. Because of Jokic. (laughs) (laughs) Yo, so I'm going to take and I'm going to take that and this might come off as a bit. I'm hoping this doesn't come off as clickbaity at all, but I haven't really (laughs) shared my thoughts with you guys very much throughout this conversation because I want to get you guys' thoughts first. But I'm going to take the back half of what Rashad say to say and answer my own question in terms of talking about where they would rank amongst the top six if we're talking about championship equity. Going into the playoffs, if they're healthy, I'm taking them to win the West. Just flat out. Like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm just oh. Go that and let me, I'm, oh. I'm going to explain it. I'm going to explain it. In my chair. I'm going to explain it from the framework using some of the, the details that's already been shared on the podcast. If you talk about the idea of the overall efficiency of Nikola Jokic so far this season, and you pair that with these two guys that you're bringing back within the framework of the playoffs this season. A wonky West, by the way. This is no disrespect to the Phoenix Suns, who are very solid season, uh, who have had a very solid season so far this year. Chris Paul is going to be entering the the playoffs injured. I do think that's something that's worth keeping an eye out on. Granted, I don't think they're going to see the Suns in the first round unless the Suns take a take a dip somewhere in here, which is going to be kind of sketchy considering there's six and a half points ahead of second place in the West. So I don't think that they're going to have to see the Suns anytime early on. And that is that, again, this is all matchup based. But right now, I have more belief in the Nuggets against Dallas, Utah, and Memphis, even with what Ja has done, and that's no disrespect to Ja, and we disrespected Ja in the playing tournament last year, and and surely had to eat crow for it because of what they were able to do. Um, but in a seven game series, I would definitely take the Nuggets over those three teams when healthy, and the two teams that, of course, you would fear if everybody's put together is the Warriors, who. Have been without Draymond Green for some time. I think he's going to be able to come back in time to make some noise for the playoffs, but it's worth noting. And then, of course, Phoenix. I really think that the Nuggets are ready to take that kind of leap that, for example, I think Utah hasn't been ready for, right? Like, I feel like the Nuggets are prepped for that leap. And I only I also believe that there's only but so many Jokic MVP seasons where you can bang your head on the second round. And I think that in a Western conference that is this weak 
real relatively speaking, right? The top is very solid from a record standpoint, but relatively speaking, in terms of championship equity, this is probably one of the weaker Western Conference seasons. If there was any time where you essentially acquired two free agents out of the woodworks who you know are proven 20-point scorers, as you mentioned beforehand, Rashad, and you drop them into a playoff scenario to just come kill for seven games, I think that the Nuggets have enough to actually come out of the West this year, if healthy. Now, of course, I have to preface all this by saying when we talk about championship equity, I did preface this whole thing by saying, if everybody is healthy, where do I put them at? I think that the Nuggets have the chance to be the team that comes out of the West when everybody's together. I'm going to give Rashad a chance to retort. I'm going to give Ryan a chance to retort, and then we're going to um, we're gonna switch gears. Yeah, so it's I think Jokic and the Nuggets have set themselves up so well to the point where MPJ and Jamal Murray, when they come back, all they have to do is be good scorers. They don't have to be great. They don't even have to do a whole lot of other things. Obviously, put in a little bit of effort on the defensive end and keep that ball moving. But it's, besides that, like, they, Jokic has hit that level of, I can do this all by myself. Right. Right? And he's gotten the year-long practice of doing it all by himself. So now he's he's grown accustomed to having just players around him that score 10, 12, 15 points a night. MPJ, Jamal Murray come back, they just have to be a fraction of what they were. And I'm agreeing with 100% of what you said. I think if that happens, a lot of all of the teams would be scared. Not just because of Jokic, but because this team is a very elite three-point shooting team. And that's scary because they pile on the points very, very quick. So, yeah. I'm worried. Even if I'm the Suns, I'm a little worried, but... I, <laughs> You know, that, that's a little tricky slope, especially with Chris Paul's new injury. So right. that's a changing situation in itself. Right. Ryan, uh, your retort or thoughts on that statement? Again, wasn't trying to come off as clickbaity within this topic, but the more and more that we've had conversations about Nikola Jokic's impact so far this season, and you pair that with the fact that the top talent isn't even on the squad right now, I feel like it's so telling. And what Rashad just came off of saying, talking about the idea that these guys don't need to step in and be the 20-point guys they were before in order to be effective. But if they come back as those guys, then we're talking about a whole other animal. But again, I want to get your thoughts. I don't want to talk too much more. Yeah, I think when you look at the Golden State Warriors and the Phoenix Suns, the, the two top teams to win the West. Chris Paul's injury, you have to take into account because I think that Suns team is still a good basketball team without Chris Paul, but obviously you have to look at guys like Cameron Payne to, to fill that that role that Chris Paul has left behind because he's, he's going to be hurt. Um, you can't really discount Golden State as like quickly because they just got Klay Thompson back. And you have Steph Curry, who even though he had been struggling for most of the season, he's still the greatest shooter of all time. Draymond Green, up for Defensive Player of the Year. Andrew Wiggins has come on as a, a solid contributor to this team. They added a lot of players in the offseason to make them better. But you have a case for it. But I'm now interested to see how Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray look coming back. Because if... If, like you said earlier, if 
If Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. can be uh, Michael Porter Jr. can be fifteen point a game scorers, I think that's fine. They don't need to score twenty if Jokic continues to put the to put up the numbers that he's putting up. But if they're scoring less than fifteen points a game, that's a bit concerning. But it's all about how they look coming back. Yeah, their health coming back is going to be huge. I think that that's really important when you talk about the framework of where they match up in the West. But I think the West is so down as a collective that I feel like if we're just going player for player in a seven-game series, you ask yourself, who is the best player on the floor on any given night? I feel like they walk into a situation where you can make an argument. Put them next to Devin Booker. Put them next to DeAndre Aiden. Put them next to Chris Paul. Put them next to Steph Curry. Put them next to Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert. You put... Nikola Jokic, with the way he's played so far this season and the totality, but I'll focus on this season in terms of the potential stretch they could go on. You put Nikola Jokic next uh, next to any other player you want to ask the question, who is the best player in this series? I think Nikola Jokic walks into each of those series with a legitimate case to be the best guy on the floor. And then if you add those other two guys in, the Nuggets walk in with the opportunity of being able to say they have three of the top five guys in each series. And I think that's I think that's huge when you talk about uh narrowing things down to seven games. But um speaking of talent, we're gonna kind of rotate back to some younger guys, passing it back to Rashad. And Rashad, I'm actually interested to see how you frame this one because the topic itself is interesting um in the framework of just individual performances as opposed to maybe how the teams are playing this season. So I want to I want I want to see where you want to go with this. But I'm gonna pass it back to you. Yeah. So the young talent that Jalen had alluded to is Trey Young and Luka Doncic. Now, these are a couple. These are two players that are a couple years into their careers now, and they they established themselves pretty early on in their rookie years. They kind of showed everyone who they would be. But now this year, both of them are taking even more jumps. Trey Young averaging 28 points and nine re- or assists. Luca averaging almost a 27-point triple-double. So I want to, in the conversation of these two young players and how balanced we're looking at that trade on draft night, what team or what player do you think could lead their franchises to higher heights? Now, we've seen Trey Young go to the Eastern Conference Finals with, I think, a, a pretty healthy Eastern Conference that year. And we've seen Luca only get bounced out by the Clippers in the second round or the first round. So the question is, will Trey Young continue continue to be the player that gets their team to that Eastern Conference Finals moving forward? I'm just, this is an anomaly year because the Hawks are struggling right now. They're sub-500, but that's, that's going to change. Trey Young is that type of player, so that will change next season or even potentially later this season. But... I just want to ask you guys, who do you think has the higher ceiling in terms of leading their team to more successes? And I think we're going to start with Ryan on that one. The higher ceiling. I think that's that's another tough question because both these te- both these players are great players. They've been phenomenal this season. Um, if I'm looking at who can lead their team to greater heights, I'm going to go... I'm going to stick with Trey Young because Trey Young, with what he's been able to do in the playoffs, taking that Hawks team last year, a team that had no expectations, and 
took them to the five seed in the playoffs and led them all the way to the Eastern Conference Finals with a competitive series against the Milwaukee Bucks. I think he has that capability to be able to take his team to greater heights. Now, this season, like you alluded to, Rashad, is a bit different compared to last year. Sub-500 record. There's a lot of issues right now with the Hawks. Defense has not been great. The plus-minus for when Trey Young is off the court is extremely noticeable. I think the one thing you have to look at with Trey Young is can he keep it up? Is How consistent will he be going into the playoffs? Because he has that capability. We know he can step up. We know he can lead his team to greater heights. But was the playoff run last year an anomaly? Can he do it again this year? Can he can he get the team to the can he get the team to the play in tournament at least? Because I think they're they're tenth right now in the Eastern Conference, right? Yeah, they are pretty low. Okay, so they're they're tenth in the Eastern Conference right now. They have a chance to get into the playoffs if they can win the play in tournament, but I think the odds are the Hawks are are going to be a lot more difficult to make a run in the playoffs compared to what they were able to do last year. You know, Ryan talked a lot about how you know this team is an anomaly and that Trey Young has that ability to kind of turn it on. And when it gets to the postseason, this team will be, I think because of him, will be a pretty scary playing team. So teams will have to watch out for them a little bit. But do you think, comparatively, do you think matchup-wise – you know, how other guards match up with Trey Young versus how they match up with Luka. Do you think that will play a bigger part in how these two teams and franchises succeed moving forward? Rashad, the way that I was going to answer your initial question, actually, this question gets answered better with the original answer I had, which is, to me, I think Luka Luka Doncic out of these two players has the better chance. And I don't think many people disagree with this. I think Luka Doncic has the better chance to be the best player in the NBA out of the two. And I think when you have that kind of overall talent ceiling, um, that's one of those things that definitely elevates you from a championship equity standpoint. Now, I would look at the Atlanta roster and say that they have a handful of different guys that they can work with. The fact that Onyeka Okongwu has been coming on pretty strong is huge. I think the fact that they didn't split uh, Trey Young and John Collins up, I think that's one of those things that might come back to bite them depending on how things progress especially because they got a lot of guys that they got on the books. Obviously, Clint Capella has been solid, but not a difference maker at the, at the center position, uh, position, at least the way I think they would hope on a night-to-night basis. I think Luca. the thing with me and Luca, and I actually, I'll pose this as a question back to you, Rashad, and that it'll help frame my next answer. Do you think there's too much stock in the fact that Luca hasn't gotten past the first round and not enough stock in who and how they lost. Because sometimes I think when people talk about the actual championship um, possibilities or championship future for a team like Dallas, they look at what they've done in the past and use that as a very heavy weight on what they project to do moving forward. And to me, I feel as though their double matchups with the Clippers, especially with Kristaps Porzingis not playing well or being literally picked on, as we joked about in the pre-show, I think matchup-wise, that had a lot more to do with their lack of success than the idea that Luka Doncic, for example, wasn't enough or something like that the way certain people tend to frame it. So I want to ask you that question. That's that's actually a really good point. I think, yes, 
people are putting entirely too much meaning into him losing to Kawhi Leonard and Paul George in the playoffs. Because what teams have two top 10 defensive wing talent together? You look at the Clippers and then you look at the Bucks, probably with Giannis and Chris Middleton a little bit. And then you look at the Boston Celtics with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Two of those teams are in the East. Right. So it is completely dumb luck that Luca had to run into the only other team that had adequate answers for him. And I think you're absolutely right because he sees a different team. It's a different type of defense. It's someone else he can manipulate because those two defenders are one of the are two of the smartest ones in the league. They're not just going to let him get around with whatever. A lot of the other teams in this league have problems stopping Luca. We've seen him just last night. He started hunting out LeBron James, of all people. He's calling for screens on bronze man and bringing him out to ISO. That's the type of time Luca has been on right now. And we we saw what he did to the Clippers this year, kind of as retribution for what they've been doing to him for the past two years and dropped what, like, what was it, 90 some points over two games? It's vicious. You could tell. He had a grudge. It was crazy. (laughs) He had a grudge. He had a, it was a huge <laughs> grudge. So they're likely not going to play each other again this year. Luca's playing the best basketball of his career. The Mavericks are a new look. They they got rid of one of their hindrances. It's a it's a new squad, a new matchup. I think we're going to see Luca succeed really and really well. I think well. if if you look I, at the matchups right now, they would be playing the Jazz, one of the worst perimeter defensive teams. In the league, oh, and we've seen it year in and year out that once it comes playoff time, you just hunt Rudy Gobert, right, in switches, which is exactly what you were talking about earlier. You talk about LeBron James, who, by the way, LeBron James playing center, man. I still can't get over that. But, like, it's one of those things where you just talk about the overall advantages, and I would take Dallas over the Utah Jazz right now in a seven-game series. I feel relatively strong about that would it be a close series am i am i seeing a gentleman sweep or something crazy like that no i think that would be at least a six game series a uh, bare minimum actually um and i would like to see you know donovan mitchell and luka luka Doncic trade blows i think it would actually be a really exciting series to watch um but i think if you just look at the framework of the way the west is set up they're like you said earlier they're not gonna see Especially with the way the, the West is set up with the Clippers being so low, they're not going to see another team that has the the kind of wing defensive potential and wing schematic um, abilities across the roster, right? Because we have to give credit to like Terrence Mann, for example, too, on the wing um, last postseason. There's no other team in the West to me outside of maybe Phoenix that has the kind of wing versatility that can hang with the Dallas Mavericks, if we're talking about simply who is going to be able to slow down a Luka Doncic-led basketball team. Um, But, Ryan, I wanted to throw it to you in terms of that as well. Like, I do think that there's a little bit too much gas put into the idea that those two Clippers series are indicative of where Dallas truly stands in the Western Conference playoff picture. And I think that if Dallas catches anybody else, and that's including the Nuggets, who I have – I have coming out of the West, despite me having a little bit of fear for them. I think if Dallas sees anybody that does outside of Phoenix, I would say Phoenix is the only person I actually fear in terms of this framework of the season, having the kind of wing defenders to be able to hang with the Lucas Doncic led team. 
They see anybody that's not Phoenix. I think that they, that this team could make the Western Conference Finals if if they play at their best at their best level. I think Luka Doncic is definitely one of the best players in the league right now. I also think when it comes to the playoffs, he's performed. He has stood up to the occasion. I think the one thing that has been holding him back, and maybe it's it might be his Achilles heel, could be the LA Clippers with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Because two straight playoff series losses to the Clippers with Kawhi and Paul George. Maybe it could be different this year. I think that there's a chance that if they play a team like Utah, I would pick them over uh, the Jazz on a seven-game series. I think that Luka Doncic has a better team around him, given what has happened in the offseason. You get Reggie Bullock, you re-sign uh, Tim Hardaway Jr. gets Sterling Brown to provide some more shooting off the bench. You trade Chris Tapsporzingis for Spencer Dinwiddie, which I, I'm I'm going to be honest, Jalen, I, I need some time to kind of see how Spencer hmm. Dinwiddie fits on this team because he's been struggling both offensively and defensively. So maybe going with a smaller lineup will benefit Luka Doncic more. Maybe the case that we saw last night because Luka Doncic had of great game against the Lakers and he seemed virtually unstoppable to the point when he hit a Dirk fadeaway on LeBron, LeBron James with four and a half minutes to go in the fourth quarter. So there is a chance that Luca can take his team past the first round. And maybe that will be the gripe that he can't make it past the first round of the playoffs. But again, he was facing Kawhi Leonard and Paul George in the playoffs. When it, with a Clippers team that had championship expectations with those two on it. Mm, right. So right. I I have to give credit where credit is due. Lucas definitely held up his end of the bargain. You now look at the supporting cast. Because I think if I measure supporting cast for supporting cast, I need to see how the other players around Luca and Trey Young perform. So, Rashad, I want to frame this question because I don't want to harp on Luka too much because I do feel like Trey Young has a dog in this fight. Again, I do feel as though Doncic has the better chance to be the best player in the league um, or get or get stamped with that title at some point um, throughout his career as opposed to Trey Young, who I think at, at his top, at his peak, may be a top 10 player in the NBA um, and remain in that list over time. But I don't think he will ever peek out as the guy that we have we ever labeled as the best player in the NBA on any given season. But let's give Trey Young his respects. 27.9 points per game, 9.3 assists per game, 3.8 rebounds, shooting nearly 90% from the free throw line. Um, one of the better three-point shooters in the league at 37.6% on 7.6 attempts, which is huge because actually for him, um, over time, he's found a way to kind of rein it in in terms of letting them fly, which might seem a little impossible yeah. when you watch him on yeah. YouTube. You're like, that's all he does is throw them up. But he's actually found a way to rein them in while being relatively um, efficient while doing so. Shooting 45 points, 45.8% from the floor, which is a little underwhelming, but his effective field goal percentage is 52.8%. Again, not the most, not the craziest thing in the world, but definitely a very effective player on any given night. He's got one of the highest usage percentages in the league. Same thing with Luka Doncic, of course. Um, where do you stand on Trey Young? Not only kind of against Luka Doncic, but like in the framework of great guards in the East. Because the reason why I asked this question, Rashad, is actually I think 
when you talk about which guy has the better chance to lead their team to a championship, unfortunately, Trey Young's best opportunity as of what we've seen was probably last season because based on the way things have gotten, the Eastern Conference has only gotten more difficult. And I think that when you put it within the framework of where does Atlanta down the line match up against some of these other teams, the Brooklyn's, uh, Philly, um, I'll throw Chicago in there because I'm biased, but I also do think they're going to be pretty good over the next two or three seasons. Um, Milwaukee, obviously. Like, the question to 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 you and for the panel, I guess, overall, is like, what do you think is the ceiling for a Trey Young team amongst what the current look of the East looks like? Because that's pretty much with a lot, way that a lot of these teams have their contracts signed up, the way the East looks right now is pretty much the East that Trey Young's going to be seeing unless, you know, Bradley Beal shakes yeah. things up, you know, somewhere else and ends up forming up with one of these top teams and then things get a little lopsided. Wow, that's a great question. Because I'm, I'm staring at the Eastern Conference standings right now and I'm trying to find a hole for them to kind of slide themselves into. The Nets are going to get better. The Lamelo is going to get better, so the Hornets are going to get better. Miami, Miami's still at the top. The top six teams are just so deadly. It's just you're right. You're right. The Trey Young is going to have, I think, a considerably harder route to being the champion of the East than Luca will in terms of going out or getting out of the West. Mm-hmm. Um, for Trey Young, I think it's just it's a personnel thing, right? So. I kind of want to bring up one of the points you brought up earlier about John Collins was that they definitely should have split them up. Like John Collins should not be on the Hawks right now. I think that's very, very apparent. The difference with the Mavs was that they pulled that move. Right. Right. They got they got rid of Kristaps despite, you know, he was playing bad, but that's still a 20 point per game, seven foot three center. Right. That's a lot to give up. And they made the move and they're better for it. The Hawks were scared to make that move. You need to have the you need to give Trey Young the same. It's it's so weird because it's like these two have been locked together by fate since draft night. And both of their teams have kind of been in similar situations and they continue to be. But now this is where they've split off. Right. Because one team made the hard choice and the other didn't. And the team that didn't is struggling. So personnel wise, that has to change before I give Trey Young any sort of, you know, favoritism towards winning the East because Luca has the tools. He's the better player and he's in a weaker conference, which is crazy because we're talking about the West. But those are just that's just is what it is now. Trey Young, terrific player. I can't take anything away from him. But you're right. Like that landscape is very, very fierce. And that's a lot of players that are going to be there for several years. So, yeah, no, I I completely agree with you on that stand. Yeah. And Ryan, I kind of want to swing it to you that way, too. Like, I feel like when you look at the, the issue about this conversation, and I think it's so funny that you phrase it the way you did. Right. These two guys fates have been sealed uh, and pretty much um, always aligned with one another again like you said since draft night and the weird part about it is I don't think that either guy has gotten a fair shake in their respects right like 
people start looking at Luka Doncic's lack of playoff success fuzzy when last season Trey Young and the Atlanta Hawks make their significant run, right? But I think that moving forward, I think Trey Young is going to oddly get the 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 odd ball of the stick, uh, the uh, the odd run of everything when you look forward because the Heat are here, the Bulls are here, Philly just improved, Milwaukee is going to be here for a while. I think Cleveland is only scratching the surface, believe it or not. Um, especially with this only being Evan Mobley's first season, Darius Garland's first real season. Um, Boston, I think, is scary. I think Boston's scary this year. Uh, you want to talk about the East framework. I think Toronto is only going to get better. They're one of the best GMs in the league. So with the kind of uh, uh, evaluation for talent that they have on a, on a year-to-year basis, I think they're only going to get better. The Nets, as long as you have KD, and they have Ben Simmons for long-term security as well, we'll have to see how that goes. But as long as you have KD, I think you're in the mix. You mentioned LaMelo Ball for the Hornets. I know that they've been a bit underwhelming this season, despite being one of the, the more favorite league pass teams um, on a year-to-year basis. Um, but they're going to get better. I think that when you look across the bottom, the Magic are missing guys that are serious players. Jonathan Isaac being one of them. I think getting back Markel Fultz has been huge. The fact that Franz Wagner has been so good in year one has been big for them as well. I think Detroit is going to make it a, a very uh, apparent thing this offseason to try to start putting very strong personnel around Kay Cunningham. Indiana already, they already made their bed, right? They, they knew what time it was this offseason and made their play while they had the, they had the, the grease cooking. And getting Tyrese Halliburton is just the, the, one of the many great building blocks they were able to uh, acquire this offseason. The Knicks and the Wizards are the ones that both have Weird fates. I would say that the Knicks are definitely dangerous when you talk about an offseason to offseason um, standpoint because any given offseason, they're going to be in talks with somebody who could change their franchise. The issue has been that they haven't been able to hit. But any given season, they're, they're always going to be in conversation. So you just look at the East top to bottom and you're just like, yo, I just don't know where to peg the Hawks on a season where everybody is firing on all cylinders, which is where the East looks like the trajectory is headed. But again, Ryan, I want to pass it over to you. Like, where would you peg the Hawks? If you're looking at every team's future, and let's project this like within the next three seasons, where do you see the Hawks peaking at in terms of their rank amongst the best teams in the Eastern Conference? I think it's five. That, that's where I'm putting them because, again, it's tough. The East is getting better, and you look at a team like Cleveland. Again, this is the team that comes out of nowhere. It, it seems like every year in the NBA, there's a team that just comes out of nowhere, and Cleveland is that team right now in the Eastern Conference. This is a team that finished 13th in the standings last year, 5th in the standings this year at 36-25. You look outside of Cleveland, Miami, Chicago, Philly, Milwaukee, Certifiable or certifiable playoff teams right now. Boston, another certifiable playoff team, especially considering that they're now one of the best defensive teams in the league. And Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are playing great basketball right now. Toronto, another team that 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 came out of nowhere. And credit to Coach Nick Nurse because Toronto barely missed the playing tournament last year. They come back, they regroup. They trade Kyle Lowry and they get Scotty Barnes in the draft. They're seventh in the West. And of course, you cannot count any team 
that has Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving out completely. And then, like Rashad mentioned earlier, LaMelo Ball is on the Charlotte Hornets, and that team is only getting better. And they just acquired Montrezl Harrell. So that helps fill the center position, which is a position that they've had a lot of trouble trying to find somebody who can hold down pretty much. So the Hawks can get as high as five, but looking at the personnel right now, they have to make another move to make them higher than a five seed because Trey Young can get you only so far before you're going to have to look at the rest of the personnel and decide who stays, who goes, who needs to make a greater impact on this team. And it's the same thing with Dallas too. You know, it's about personnel. Who do you surround your top players with? Uh, Rashad, I want to ask you this as a quick question, and then we're gonna we're gonna uh, flip to the next topic. Is this is this the sell the farm for Bradley Beal move? Is that oh wow? Uh, Ryan Ryan uh, Ryan essentially brought it up inadvertently by talking about looking at the landscape, selling selling guys in order to get that top second guy. The only guy that sounds legitimately on the market that might be able to fit within that framework would probably be a guy like Bradley Beal to be able to put next to a guy like Trey Young, it, do you think that's the kind of trigger that is missing for this Hawks team? Or do you think there's a, a handful of other guys or any other guys in general that you think that should be on the Hawks radar realistically that maybe align with like what Ryan's talking about, of maybe taking that swing, like you even mentioned earlier, of moving off from some of these guys to get guys who will fit what, me, what will put them in the best position to make a championship run? I think it. I'm, I'm trying to see if I think that they should follow the route that the Mavs are going, which is trading away that second star for more depth. So it's not necessarily Luca plus one; it's Luca plus seven or Luca plus eight. Mm. Do the Hawks need to do that as well? I think they do. So I don't think they trade for a. Obviously, a Bradley Beal type would help, but if you have a player that's so on-ball dominant like Trey Young. Someone who off the ball really is, you know, he's a short, small guard. Off the ball is just not where he needs to be, right? So do you, do you risk bringing in someone who needs the ball also in their hands to, you know, try to alleviate that pressure? Does Trey Young even need that pressure taken off of him? These are a lot of questions that I think we don't have the answers to yet because we've really only seen what this team can be for one postseason. So I think the the front office in Atlanta is probably going to be a little bit more hesitant in terms of making that big splash, you know, seeing how their talent develops, because there are a considerable amount of young players on this team that haven't reached what they should be or what people have projected them to be, right? DeAndre Hunter is still dealing with a lot of injury stuff. They traded away Cam Reddish, which is a very confusing move. <laughs> they, they're clinging on to Clint Capella, which is also a questionable move because I know they said that they won't even entertain the thought of trading him. It's just there are a lot of – I think there are a lot of long-term decisions that they're going to have to wait and you know see how the landscape of the NBA plays out before they can actually pull the trigger. And it's very unfortunate for them because they are stuck in that bottom tier slash mid-tier of the East. And, you know, trying to pry away players from those teams, that's not really going to work, right? Right. <laughs> so they're just in a very, very unfortunate spot. A, a decent team that has gotten caught up in the resurgence of the East, honestly. And I think right now they just sit back and wait and and just ride out this temporary play-in spot. 
and just see what happens over the offseason and go from there. So I want to pass it over to you in terms of another team that's in a top in a tough spot. And this is us shifting, focusing more on the Western Conference. And there's a lot of stuff that's come out lately. I am going to read some reports in regards to it. Rashad, I want you to introduce it. And as well as your question, this is one of those where I feel like you could go anywhere you want to with this one, right? Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about the Lake Show for a second, right? Ooh. The very, very, very disappointing Los Angeles Lakers this year currently sit at the ninth seat in the West. Only two games from being pushed out of the play-in. They're seven games under 500. they They're 3-7 and seven in their last 10. AD is going to be out for a long time. They had to move LeBron back to center. Russ is still there doing Russ things. And the team just has no positive outlook right now. You can just tell. You're watching the games. They look dejected. No one's really putting in the effort. Malik Monk is going on a slump now. Like, there, there are a lot of things going wrong with the Lakers. So this is going to be very, very dramatic. Do they blow it up next year? Ooh. And I'm talking everybody. Man. Or That's a tough Jalen, do you want to go first? They- because I mean, really, like, where do they go, go from here, right? Yeah, I I can go first this on is, this one, Jalen. I mean, I... It's so please, you, yeah, I, go you ahead, know, man. Okay, <laughs> I'd be capping if I, I told you I got it, bro. I had news to read. I wasn't ready for that one. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. Yeah, man. Let's, uh, All yours. let's break this down real quick. Um, yes, please. Okay. The Lakers, I said this a couple weeks ago when we had Thomas Christian on. The Lakers are doomed. This is a team that had high expectations to win the championship. And they sit in ninth place in the Western Conference. As Jalen and I, as Jalen and I correctly predicted. True. That they would be a play-in team as the season would end. That's fact. And we often ask two questions of this team. One, how seriously did they take the regular season? And two, is this team going to be the same defensive team that they were last year? And I'm not 100% sure in the answer to the first question, but the second question is, no, they're not the same defensive team that they were last year. Mm -hmm. The thing that has been hurting the Lakers right now is the fact that Anthony Davis cannot stay healthy. And that's, that's priority number one, Anthony Davis's health. Because when Anthony Davis and LeBron James are on the floor together, you know that the Lakers can win at least 45 games in a regular season. Russell Westbrook, I will say this again, and I've been saying this the entire season, has been a terrible fit for this team. And he does not mesh well with LeBron on the court. And speaking of LeBron, I mean... Great season that he's having this year at age 37. But I put some blame on LeBron because he helped construct this team. He brought Carmelo Anthony to the Los Angeles Lakers. He brought Russell Westbrook to the Los Angeles Lakers. And he gave up Montres Harrell, KCP, and Kyle Kuzma. More depth. 
Alex Caruso left in free agency. That was a huge hit to the Lakers. Over $4 million too. Over $4 million. That was a huge Crazy. hit to their team. You look at the rest of the team, DeAndre Jordan has not been a good fit, and he just got waived in favor of DJ Augustine and Wenyang Gabriel. Like, at that point, you might as well just keep DeAndre Jordan. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> you see, again, like, I don't know who you blame for this. Do you blame Rob Palenka for also helping construct this team? Because I think... For being a wuss? <laughs> and listening to his players and not being a GM? Yes. I don't even know what to say. I, I Frank Vogel, I think he probably needs to go too because... Actually, actually, I don't... Man. So does the question at this point? Does the question become? Does everyone need to go? Not okay, just players. I think you blow, I think you blow up the entire. <laughs> you team. blow up you the blow whole up. operation. Okay, so let me. I'm going to read some stuff. I'm going to read some stuff from uh, Bleacher Report earlier that came from Jake Fisher, very notable guy yes. for the uh, the Lakers uh, brass. I would say in terms of the uh, overall writing sphere in journalism. I'm going to read a couple of notes. That I feel like are important. I might even link this in the description, but great article by Jake Fisher on um, Bleacher Report. It's easy to find. But I'm going to read a couple of specific sentences throughout this article that I feel like put all of this um, into a, a lens that I think we all can understand and maybe build our points off of. So the first thing I'm going to I'm touch on is this part. It says, the Lakers' struggles may have ultimately, may ultimately have ramifications for several key Los Angeles actors. Obviously, this goes to Rashad's question of whether or not they have to look their mortality in the face in terms of the long-term, um, the long-term stature of this team. Like, can this team stay as currently constructed, considering all of the major players from all sides? Goes on to say, league insiders remain dubious that that Rob Palenka is truly entrenched as Los Angeles. Los Angeles' lead executive beyond this season. The same doubt extends to the futures of embattled head coach Frank Vogel and Russell Westbrook. This goes to what Ryan was speaking about earlier in terms of the fear about Frankie V. I know I made a scrunchy face. I didn't mean to make you feel like, you know, deter from your point. That's just more so for me. I felt as though Frank Vogel, the Lakers, Lakers fans and Lakers brass always have seemed to need a fall guy. And unfortunately, I feel as though Frank Vogel has been turned into the fall guy after Russell Westbrook started getting, when Russell Westbrook started getting benched, you cannot blame the play of Russ in the clutch anymore, right? You had, it started to frame it where earlier in the season, I even made a quick TikTok about this, where he was on a game by game basis, getting evaluated within the coaching sphere. That's insanity. Like who's, how are you supposed to do your job with a gun to the back of your head the entire season? I don't know exactly how that's supposed to work, but I'm going to continue reading this. It says Vogel's job security has been in question since he was awarded a one-year contract extension in August. This goes back to what I was just talking about. Vogel's job was reportedly in jeopardy, and he continues to endure rampant speculation. Few coaching figures hold optimism Vogel will still be manning the Lakers' sideline come 2022-2023. The whispers have been quiet on who could serve as the Los Angeles' next play caller. Previous preferred candidates such as Tyron Lue and Jason Kidd have found success with the Clippers and Mavericks. There's a situation right there where now they don't even have a future in terms of who that next guy would be. Let's go a little bit further down. Palenka's circumstances are far cloudier than Vogel's, a franchise so rooted in its history with a management focused on upholding a familial feel, deeply va deeply values its connection with the man who long represented Kobe Bryant. I'm going to go back to something Rashad said earlier about the front office. 
and the idea of not being scared of your players and being a good GM. This is something that other people feel is an issue and something that, ironically enough, Dallas Mavericks fans were very fearful of when talking about this past offseason with a lot of cronyism made by Mark Cuban bringing in Jason Kidd as a coach, bringing in a Nike executive as their as their vice president. All things that were interesting questions has worked out for them. And one could argue with getting a championship in 2020 did work out for Rob. But thus far, he has fell more and more. The, the, the difference, I think, is that the, the Dallas Mavericks have been able to make moves that please their superstar in a way that also is translatable to the production on the court. As opposed to what has happened, especially within this last offseason, is that chirping in the ear of Rob Palenka has turned into its own version of NBA 2K, in which the only way that it can be successful on a night-to-night basis is if you turn the sliders up, something they don't have the ability to do, obviously. I'm going to go a little bit further down. It says, however, multiple sources with knowledge of the uh, situation strongly deny Wilkes' candidacy. This is talking about another person that could be in the mix. They were referring to a handful of different guys within the framework of being able to get a rebuild that starts quickly by getting guys like Paulo Banchero, who's associated with Clutch Sports and stuff like that. They make an argument against keeping um, Rob Palenka later on the article. Apparently, there's also claims that Russell Westbrook would be okay with parting from Los Angeles made in this article. Again, very, very interesting article. I would definitely advise everybody to give it a good read. It's it's lengthy, but if you if you want to know a little something, something about the Lakers, this is definitely where you want to lean on. I'm going to take all of this, pass it back to Rashad in this format. What do you think? You get to take the GM hat for a day, and you are the difference between what happens next for the Lakers as their advisor, so to speak. The next, in, fill in the blank for me. The next move the Lakers should make in order to maintain championship status or championship contention is to do what? Is to trade Russell Westbrook. And if not a trade because his stock is at an incredibly low value, buy him out. Wave him. Do, well, you can't wave him. No one's going to pick up that contract. So you're going to yeah, bite that one off that. the books. But <laughs> that would be a risky gamble to wave a $44 million player. But he needs to go. And I think the reason why they brought him in was to kind of alleviate Braun of that ball handling pressure and that facilitating and playmaking stuff. Uh-huh. But it just hasn't worked. Right? And I think it's time to face the music that Russ was – one of the worst decisions this team could have made in the offseason mm-hmm. in terms of fit. You already had an injury-prone AD, so now you're bringing in a turnover-prone, inefficient point guard to kind of fill that void or you know, prepare to fill that void in case he did get injured, which he did. But now you're getting hurt even more because of that. They gave up all of their depth for Russell Westbrook, which is just... You know, every time we talk about this trade, it just it makes less sense every single time because you give up X amount of players and shooters and weapons on the offensive end for one player whose possessions always end in a vacuum, a turnover, 
or poorly missed shot. Right? So very first action I'm doing, Russ is gone. Uh, like day one, I'm there. So realistically speaking, and I don't think, again, I'm trying not to drop like clickbaity stuff within this podcast, but I'm just trying to share my stream of consciousness to y'all. I think you trade AD. That's, and yeah, this has been brought up before. I mean, Stephen A. Smith has brought it up on the podcast before. There's other people who have brought it, I mean, on uh, first take before, excuse me. There's other people who have brought up this idea before. And at first I thought it was a little insane, but realistically speaking, this team cannot make any kind of moves that are not considered lateral without moving guys that from the outside looking in would be considered as significant cogs to what would be a part of a championship level team. And Russell Westbrook, I think, is too hard to trade. I mean, we just watched mm-hmm. Russell Westbrook get traded essentially for John Wall like twice, basically. You know what I mean? Because, uh, I mean, going into this trade deadline, it was about to happen again. And it came down to the Lakers not wanting to give up their 2027 over their 2027 pick. Otherwise, it could have happened again. And that just goes to kind of tell you the level of buyer's remorse they have as well as the fear the league has to pay any real price for it. And then there was talks, obviously, it started getting a little hyperbolic when I heard the ideas of trading LeBron James. The trick for this, though, I thought was actually that that's not even a terrible idea. And LeBron put him in, put him in his own basket because of two things. Did you guys know that this is the first time that LeBron James in years didn't sign a contract that does not involve a no-trade clause? Huh. They could send LeBron anywhere. They could send LeBron anywhere. Yes. You want to know what the, 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 the other double-edged sword is? Despite all the stuff in the news of clutch client uh, clutch stuff with Rich Paul reading uh, um, meeting with Rob Palenka and Lakers brass downplaying All Star Weekend. Listen, I'm not letting what LeBron James said at All Star Weekend slide. What am I referring to? He put the whole league on notice by telling the whole league that wherever my son plays, that is where I want to be when my career ends. He just gave the entire 2024 class, let's say, tw- say 2025, probably respectively, class. He put the whole entire put the entire class on notice. <laughs> he just put anybody who's mortgaging future picks on notice that 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 specific year they need to be in the tank sweepstakes because it's essentially like we saw with getting. Kawhi Leonard by getting Paul George, you about to get LeBron James by getting Bronny. These are two things that are self-inflicted choices. And it also gives you your best opportunity to move off LeBron James for the best value you possibly can get. Oh my god, yeah, you're getting everything if you decide to pull that trigger right now. That is absolutely Ooh, I almost caught myself saying that's absolutely the move that they need to do. <laughs> but realistically, yeah, you're you're not off base at all because you know, I, I was thinking while you were talking about teams usually get rid of players that aren't helping them win, right? Mm-hmm. So that starts with Russ at the tippy top. That start that it goes to AD because he can't stay on the floor. 
So Anthony Davis is someone who's not helping you win games right now. LeBron can't keep doing this. So the longer that you have him at center playing 37 minutes a night with no help at all, you're diminishing his value as you go on. You're wearing him down physically as you go on. So you won't be able to sell as high on LeBron as you will next offseason or even during the season next year. So it's just we we would never think because of the Lakers that we would be talking about trading LeBron James and Anthony Davis. But it's gotten that bad. And but I think that's the thing. I think that's the thing. I think AD is more realistically to trade. So yeah. if you gave me the GM hat and said the first thing you do is I said AD because I feel like he's more realistically to be traded. Mm-hmm. If you had to talk about somebody who you logistically you put them on a trade block and you feel comfortable knowing what's walking out the door, I think AD, you're more comfortable with watching AD walk than LeBron. But I think in terms of if you want to turn this thing around quickly, you either have to move away from Braun. I, I think I said this uh, said this too. I think you have to move away from Braun, AD, THT or a combination of that group. I said that in an Instagram uh, response to one of my friends too, when they asked about what the Lakers even could do moving forward. But Ryan, I want to pass it to you because I, I mean, I like if you had the the GM hat, the one thing you could do to turn this team around in terms of still being able to maintain championship uh, aspirations. Because again, this is the Lakers. You're not going to turn them into a tanking team. You can't. You almost can't. Right. So what would that thing be? So if we're strictly focusing on this year, I think the idea of trading Russ, trading AD, trading LeBron, trading everybody, essentially, is off the table. Well, it would, it would have to be next season, yeah, bro, yeah. Like obviously. Because co- yeah. like this season, they wouldn't be able to. Yeah, it's complete, so it's completely off the table for this year. Strictly focusing on this year, the one thing that they can do to help their championship aspirations is to look at their G League teams. Because there are... Hmm. I know it's a stretch to say that, but imagine what Mason Jones can do for this team. Imagine what Gabe York can do for this team. A lot of our unsung hoopers who we were talking about making impacts in the G League could make impacts in the pros. Now, that's strictly this year. Next year, blow it up. Trade everybody. The top priority is not trading Russell Westbrook. It's not trading Anthony Davis. It's not trading THT. It is trading LeBron James. Because you are wasting one of the greatest players of all time in their prime on a team that is going nowhere. They're going nowhere fast. This team is not going to make the playoffs. They may not make the playoffs in uh, this year, they're not going to make the playoffs next year. They're not going to make the playoffs in two years, three years, five years. This team is not making the playoffs as currently constructed unless something changes. And again, the idea is trading LeBron James. Where can you trade him? Thankfully, like Jalen mentioned earlier, there's a no trade clause in his contract, which means he can go anywhere. And the possibilities are endless. So... You can put him, you know what? You could put him in Oklahoma City and he could probably turn that team around. You could put him in Orlando 
and you could put him in Detroit. You could put him in Charlotte. You could put him anywhere, and he will turn a franchise around. But he has to, he has to have, he has to not have as much power as he had earlier on in his career. Because I get it, when he was in Cleveland, he had to have some sort of power because the front office there was not giving him the players that he wanted to have on his team. So you need to you need to give LeBron some power so that he can help construct a franchise, but you need to also put him with a competent GM, which arguably he has not had since Pat Riley in Miami. You need to put him with a team that has a direction and knows what they're going to be able to do for the future so that he and his son can live out the final years of LeBron's career. So I I also want to bring up a point on the flip side of that. It's, you know, I think we're, we're all kind of veering toward the point that trading LeBron would probably be the best thing for the Lakers next season. Um, But what, what team takes that chance? Or it's not even a chance, really. It's just Mm -hmm. LeBron is, is very famously on the tail end of his career right now. There has been decline, not by much because he's still LeBron, but there has been some very noticeable decline. Is there a team out there that is willing to part with three young players, several draft picks, first round draft picks at that, for two, three seasons of LeBron? You know, I, I just don't think it's out there. You know, Rashad, I have a feeling Cleveland could do that. It seems like Cleveland could pull that that type of a move. And shockingly enough, I think it happens. Because why not bring LeBron in for round three? And he has, you know, he has a son with him as well. And what are you giving up is the real question. Do you give up Evan Mobley, Jared Allen? Uh, Do you give up Darius Garland? I think, yeah, that's where it gets a little bit tricky. But the destination to Cleveland makes sense because why not finish finish your career where it started? But it all depends on where Bronny goes, basically. Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah. I mean, that's that. That would be storyline wise. That would be where it gets done, right? He goes back to Cleveland for round three. Plus, he has Bronny there, and hopefully, the team as currently constructed would still have some kind of equity to it. The trick with it is, I don't think Cleveland's gonna go down swinging in terms of what they, you know, what. <laughs> they have to give back in order to get a guy like LeBron James. And I think that's the tricky part because, you know, there was a statement earlier this year by Stephen A. Smith on first take that he said, if you drop LeBron James on this Cleveland Cavaliers team this year, he thinks they come out of the East, which I think is actually a realistic um, statement to make. It seemed a bit hyperbolic at first, especially because I think early in the season, we were still trying to get a grip on whether or not this Cleveland team in terms of their season was real. Um, but I, I, I think that that's something worth discussing, but I feel like also if you're, if that's going to happen again, I think Cleveland is going to have to, you don't say no to LeBron James, but there's still a way that you have to be able to like leverage yourself and they can't be putting guys like Darius Garland, guys like Evan Mobley. You can't put those guys in that kind of trade when those, those are the kind of guys that a, you would probably want LeBron paired with and B, I think LeBron probably would want around if he's going to come to the team. I think that's a multi-team trade, though. 
if, if, if you want to try to preserve Evan Mobley, Jared Allen, and Darius Garland, that's where you have to involve four or five teams. That's fair. Um, Rashad, I want to pass it over to you. To uh, Any final thoughts in terms of the Lakers stuff? And then we'll go to our last topic. We are uh, coming up a little bit long, and we got one more topic left. Um, so I'm going to pass it over to you to get any final thoughts in terms of the Lakers stuff. And then, of course, we're going to get into that last uh, and final top storyline. Yeah, no. They, basically, the whole premise is they need to blow it up, and they need to blow it up fast. And I think that's where I'm going to stand on them until they actually pull that trigger. Okay. Um, but yeah, like you were saying, our last topic for today, or the fifth topic, I should say, is DeMar's reign. Now, this has been, I think, behind Ja, the second biggest individual player storyline this league has seen this year. And he's playing at an MVP level, right? A lot of the, a lot of the lists have him top five. The NBA list, I believe, had him at number four, the one that came out last week. But, you know, it's no surprise that this man is playing bonkers right now so with Demar, i want to pose the question of did anyone see this style of Demar derozan popping up a top five mvp candidate a 28 point per game scoring Demar derozan a Demar derozan leading a chicago bulls team to the top of the east is this something that anyone could have honestly said that they saw coming and i think i want to start with Jalen, because this man is the resident <laughs> Chicago oh, Bulls fan, but you know, just just as even as a fan, honestly, mm-hmm. and as an objective NBA watcher, right. did you see Demar's coming like this? So no, number one, I would say no. I told you guys in the off season that one of the biggest things I felt like was disrespectful to the Bulls was that people were putting a little bit too much weight on the payment for DeMar DeRozan as opposed to the acquisition itself and how he could pair well next to Zach Levine. I think his pair pairing next to Zach Levine as well as the on-off numbers for when he's on the floor without Zach Levine are all very staggering in terms of like, if you're a Bulls fan, you feel very happy about the product on the floor. I still am not super happy about what we had to lose. Obviously, having to lose out on Thaddeus Young, I feel like that's a guy who like, all year been pounding the table like if we can just get a four man like a real four or like a real three like to fill in these gaps where we're forced to go a lot smaller i think we could be dangerous thaddeus young was a guy who's solidly but also quietly in the six man of the year conversation at least in my eyes and i think some other nba analysts also felt he was at least in the top three in terms of candidacy last year i thought having to leave uh lose out on thaddeus young who is now with uh toronto with the toronto raptors shout out my guy tv on basketball He's over there now, but I think acquiring DeMar DeRozan was still the move. Getting guys to pair around Zach Levine and DeMar DeRozan like um, Alex Caruso, who hasn't been on the floor for a little while, but we've been able to withstand that. Lonzo Ball, who hasn't been on the floor for a little while, been able to withstand that. But I think if this team was not getting... I think I said this in a recent recap, too. I think when I was recapping the... Bulls versus Miami Heat game for um, Ultimate Sports Network. The thing that I said was that what everything DeMar DeRozan has done so far this season, the games with 30 points plus um, streak, he had a 10 game, he had a 10 game streak with 30 plus points. He had um, eight straight games with 35 plus points on 50% or better shooting. These are all things the Bulls actually needed in order to come out victorious in a handful of these games. So, to me, I don't think anybody could have seen DeMar DeRozan having the best season of his career points-wise, efficiency-wise, 
impact-wise. His clutch numbers are nuts. If you want to talk about fourth quarter and scoring, it's not close. And everybody clips the, the, the buzzer beaters. I was even there for one of them. Um, as you guys recall, one of the, the first games of the new year was the buzzer beater against the Washington Wizards. Everybody leans on that stuff when they talk about his overall impact within the fourth quarter and in the clutch and everything like that. But the numbers are much more glaring than just the stuff you see in quick highlight caps of him hitting game winners. So DeMar DeRozan being the player that he's been for the Bulls, I don't think Bulls fans could have said they expected this much out of them. But I also feel like people who were not Bulls optimists coming into the season didn't view the Bulls as much of a threat coming into the year despite acquiring DeMar DeRozan. And I think DeMar DeRozan being on this team now has been a twofer because he's been able to make the Bulls better as a squad. And he's also been able to put himself back in the national spotlight as being considered as one of the better guards slash forwards in the NBA, something that while he was stashed in San Antonio, wasn't really getting the daps for. Um, Ryan, I want to pass it over to you. And then I actually want to ask Rashad a question that I had I had to teeter with the other day when I was writing an article about the Bulls. So something interesting I just looked at with right. DeMar DeRozan's stats, he has not put up a game below 20 points in terms of scoring before the last game against Miami where he, where he had 18 points since January 14th against the Golden State Warriors when he had 17 points. Ever since then, he has scored over 20 points in every single game up to uh, uh, February 28th. Mm-hmm. Did we expect this from DeMar DeRozan? I did not certainly expect this from DeMar DeRozan. He is... he's He's become one of the best players in the league quickly. And it's simply because he just fits well with what Chicago has been looking for. And like Jalen alluded to earlier, this is everything and more from what Chicago Bulls fans wanted from him. And you know, you talk about him as, as one of the best mid-range shooters right now in the NBA. He's one of the best clutch shooters, like Jalen mentioned as well. His clutch stats are ridiculous. And what he can do for the in the fourth quarter for the Chicago Bulls is even more impressive considering that he's 32 years old. Like this is the best season of his career at 32 years old. Honestly, I didn't expect this from him. And the fact that we're talking about him as an MVP candidate with the likes of John Morant, Giannis, Jokic, and Embiid is impressive. And I think... Now that he is fully solidified himself in this call in this conversation, DeMar DeRozan has a legit chance to win the MVP. And looking at his numbers for the month of February, 34.2 points a game with 6.2 rebounds and 5.2 assists. He's shooting the ball 55% from the field, 40% from three. He's never been that great of a three-point shooter, but for him to shoot 40% from three is impressive. And, of course, 88% from the line. He's able to connect when uh, he gets fouled and gets to the line. But, again, what else can he do more for this team? Because if he continues to play like this, he's an, he's he's a, he, he's a going to be definitely getting – he's going to definitely get some votes for the MVP for sure. So, 
Rashad, I want to ask you this question. I want to get your thoughts. I'll pass it back to Ryan, and then I'll kind of give my thoughts after that. One of the big things that I've been concerned about in the game against Miami is the one that really put it in perspective for me. Is so they the the Bulls are one and seven against teams ranked in the top six in the Eastern Conference, with their only win coming against the Cleveland Cavaliers um, back in January. Now, as a Bulls optimist, right, and I've talked to other Bulls fans via TikTok and stuff like that, and it's been one of those things that I feel like we are all commiserating with the same excuses. If we had Alex Caruso. We would have won this game. If we had Lonzo Ball, we would have won this game. Did you remember when we had Javante Green along with eight other players out due to COVID? Like, of course, that's where the collective bull sigh comes out is, okay, a lot of these games have happened while we're not extremely healthy. And I'm willing to concede that there is a little bit of validity to that. Um, But I also like to be realistic about my teams. And the one thing I do have to ask myself is whether or not this team is legitimate when we talk about where they stand amongst the other Eastern Conference championship contenders, right? The main teams that we focus on, Milwaukee, the Brooklyn Nets, who actually it was reported today that a little bit earlier while we were on the, on the pod, um, KD's coming back tomorrow to play against the Miami Heat, which is huge because he hasn't played in a month. So KD's back. The Brooklyn Nets. I said Milwaukee earlier, Philadelphia with James Harden and Joel Embiid. Those are probably the top teams in terms of you, in terms of most people's presumed potential Eastern Conference champion. Do you think, and I'll say win healthy because we do have to preface this way, and we said it that way the same way with the Denver Nuggets, so I'll preface this way. Do you think that the Bulls have a legitimate shot to play upset alert? in the playoffs. I know that when we get closer to the playoffs, I definitely want to get all the homies' perspectives on the championship race. But focusing on the Bulls, especially with this topic of how unprecedented DeMar has played this season, I don't see too many more seasons where the Bulls will be this close to championship contention in terms of just like what the product on the floor looks like, right? Second seed in the East, one of the one of the top five players in the league this season. I just don't see that being something they're going to be able to get continuously on a season-to-season basis moving forward. So I almost view this as their best shot. But with this being their best shot, do you even think that's enough? No, I don't think that the Bulls, they don't have it this year. And you're, I, you're right. I'm in the same line of thinking that if it's not this year, it's, it's not going to be ever. Right? Especially with the growth that we've talked about in the Eastern Conference. It's just going to get a lot harder moving forward to even get to the Eastern Conference mm. Finals at that, let alone the finals. But it, it, this team, I've, I've thought about this team very similarly to how I feel about the Jazz, right? This is a team that they are really good. They're Honestly, they both have identical records. Both are in the top five of their conferences. Both have two all-stars on their squad. Both teams are really good defensively, can put the ball in the bucket. They have pretty decent matchups against a lot of their other conference mates, but they won't ever be taken seriously. And and it's, it's weird to say that about someone with a top five MVP candidate, but I think the team overall is just, you know, you couple the, the lack of experience in the playoffs because the Bulls just haven't been there in general for the past couple of seasons. So 
this is this is going to be an entirely new experience for a lot of those players on that <laughs> roster. You right. got the, the Alex Caruso's, you got the the DeMar DeRozan's who have been there. You even got the Vucevic's that have been there. But none of these teams have had to go deep into the playoffs and play teams that are at their absolute tippy top. Right? This is still the first year of this team. We're about 60-some games in. They're sitting up like, what, 16 games above 500. They look really, really good right now. We don't have, I don't think we have enough evidence for them for, we don't have enough evidence of them to say that they have a legitimate shot at the finals. I think we've seen enough from them coupled with everyone else that we can say pretty confidently that they won't win the finals. Right. So it's just a it's a matter of balancing what we can accurately like label this team as, which is a strong Eastern Conference final finalist, but never beyond that point. Okay. I feel like that's a fair like I said, I, w- I want to be realistic about this team because I do think that especially when we're talking about all stars aligning and maybe the only thing that maybe is isn't in the Bulls' favor has just been held mm-hmm. throughout the season, but they've also outperformed that. So when you talk about everything aligning in a frame where if you look at it with just tunnel vision, you look at this team and you say, okay, they got wing defenders and Lonzo Ball and Alex Caruso, who are two of the better perimeter defenders in the league. You talk about Zach Levine, who's one of the better perimeter scorers, as well as a guy who's one of the best transition scorers in basketball. DeMar DeRozan has been able to step in for this team, slow this team down, um, something that we didn't have last season or even the season before that because we were such a run and gun team i know that the pace if you look up the stats the pace might not indicate that we were a fast team but as an inexperienced chuck it kind of team we were a team that did not play with a lot of control demar DeRozan has brought that and with that being the case you have zach levine playing at an all nba caliber level i think he'll make like all nba third team probably at the guard spot this year you have demar DeRozan, who has been playing at an mvp caliber level put himself in the top five in that discussion as we talked about earlier And then you look at the supporting cast and you have athletes across the board. You have guys who can step out on the perimeter. You have a handful of dudes who can really guard. Now the question is, do you have anybody that can guard Joel? Nope. Do you have anybody that can guard Giannis? Nope. Is anybody ever checking KD? Never. So with that being the case, the weird part about it is that, unfortunately, even with everything lining up for the Bulls, I still have my fears on how dangerous they can be within a playoff setting. Ryan, I wanted to pass it to you and get your thoughts on the same thing. Again, as a Bulls fan that's trying to also be a realist, as much as I am overly optimistic, and y'all know how I can get, because I can really be talking about the Bulls on a, on, a, on a regular basis, but if I'm being realistic about this team, I do understand and do realize there is a bit of a cap out, unfortunately, with where this team may rank amongst some of the other better squads in the, in the East, even the Miami Heat, who when it comes when it comes playoff time, they're they're one of the scariest defenses I think in the entire NBA. When we talk about being in a seven game series um, setting, where the physicality of the game is going to be more allowed, the game is going to slow down, and it actually caters to their play style a lot more. So even Miami's in this mix, where I'm like, is Chicago better than Miami in the championship picture? Like, I struggle with that. But again, like, what are you, what are your thoughts? So Jalen, you alluded to something earlier that I wanted to talk about a little bit. The Bulls are one and 11 against teams that have an above 600 winning percentage. The one thing that does concern me though, about the Bulls is their interior defending. 
And maybe Tristan Thompson does help with that. But when they get to the second round, they're going to either have to have to go up against a team in Philadelphia who has Joel Embiid, MVP candidate, or they're going to have to go up against Giannis, another MVP candidate, who's been dominating this season. I think this is just something I have to see to believe because the Bulls do seem like a team that can make a very sneaky run to the Eastern Conference Finals, but their record against teams above 600, that's, that, that is noticeable, and it does kind of scare me a little bit with this team. So a final point I want to make before I pass it back to Rashad to get his final thoughts, and then we're actually going to close out the podcast too, is if you look at the standings right now, the Bulls are really killing themselves to maybe stick with that second seed, and it's by any means, right? And maybe even maybe even they might want to rethink that and really fight the heat for that top seed because the playoffs started today that would be facing the Toronto Raptors. I think that would be a preferred first-round matchup. If things go the way we think they could with Kevin Durant coming back, the Nets might have that seven seed real quick. Ah. <laughs> and so my, my fear, my fear, right? You see what I mean? My fear is that the Bulls catch the Nets in the first round. And if the Bulls catch the Nets in the first round, my fear is that they get booted out in the first round. And then this season gets labeled as disappointing, despite how great this season has been so far this year so Rashad I'll pass it to you in terms of your final thoughts on this Bulls team and what they have moving forward and maybe even just your thoughts on what I just stated about like the the playoff matchups again kind of like what I mentioned with Denver but this team maybe even more specifically with how strong the the East is is top to bottom the Bulls are playing for matchups they, they, their route to the Eastern Conference Finals really is determined by where their seeding is and the guy and the teams around them and where they land. Yeah, oh, man. It yeah, right. It's I'm I'm very upset right. that they had to bring this whole team together this year, right? This is I think this is about a year or two too late for them to try and make serious noise with this roster, right? And I, I think that's honestly where it ends because. This is a really good team, like 39 and 23 right now with how stacked this conference is. That's incredible. To not have your two defensively gifted guards and to still be this good, that's a gift. And that's been great. So the season, I think you're right because people will try to over, you know, overextend on what they say about this team if they don't at least get to the Eastern Conference Finals, which is that it'll be a disappointment. It's not a disappointment. There's a team that hasn't sniffed the top of the conference in so long. And they got there with some really, really good offseason moves. And these are these are players that are going to be here for a couple of years. So it's not totally lost that they could make a run in a couple or like a year or two. But DeMar is on the back leg of his career, I think. He's getting a little bit older. He's got a three-year contract here. We don't know what Zach Levine might do afterwards. He's still got to sign that contract and, and make sure that he's actually right. here for the next couple of years. But... Yeah, it's just unfortunate for the Bulls. They've done everything right, and it sucks that it won't lead to anything. And that's that's where I feel, you know, strongly. Yeah, that's tough, man. That's just to that's hear tough. that. But I understand it. Yeah, man, that's tough to hear. But it's like that's the truth of the matter, right? Like I feel like when you look at other teams, like Cleveland, for example. 
they have a lot of upside because a lot of their guys are locked up long term. And honestly, I feel like they're just mm-hmm. ahead of schedule as opposed to us, where us making this kind of run is more so where we need to be, right? In terms of having Zach Levine on this team long term, having DeMar DeRozan as a part of this squad, uh, making a big trade for Nikola Vucevic, the fact that we decided that we were all in on trying to build around Zach Levine, this was kind of that window where we need to be in it. And unfortunately, we're going to fall under that umbrella of teams that if this was any other year, maybe. Right. You know, so that's that's the bizarre thing about it. But Rashad, I want to pass it to you in this way, in terms of closing the podcast out. Uh, Final thoughts of anything you want to plug or anything you got upcoming in terms of content and stuff like that uh, to get us about here. Yeah. So these two guys, these fine gentlemen here have been inspiring me to make some more basketball content. So I'm doing that right now. I have a YouTube channel called The Drop Step, where I upload analytical and post-game reactions. It's a lot of good stuff. I'm having a lot of fun right now. I'm working on a new series called MVP Case, where I take a look at the top five, top six MVP candidates and list out a very objective, non-biased argument for each of their candidacy. So the first episode will be on Jokic. The editing is almost done on that. So by the time this podcast is up, you should be able to go over to my channel and watch that video. That's about it. <laughs> Content-wise, I am, I'm just riding the wave of the NBA right now. We're getting into some pretty exciting times. Yeah, man. So we're going to drop all of the links to stuff for Chicago, uh, Rashad's pages in terms of we're talking about his Instagram. We're talking about his YouTube um, and across the board because Rashad's doing a lot of really great stuff in terms of this basketball space. We appreciate the fact that we have any kind of motivation on that, obviously. And we love having you on for content. Uh, Ryan, close us out of here, bro. This has been another great episode of the Hoop Talk podcast. Make sure to, when you subscribe to us on Apple, you rate our podcast five stars and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We will see you guys next episode. Peace.